Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 73. Operation Ascari ended, but not the recriminations. While on the surface, the SADF gave off a great deal of positive propaganda, the loss of 21 men and equipment, including the rifles, and the haphazard manner in which the planning had taken place was a sign that all was not well. The morale of the citizen force units was unacceptable, said the permanent force officers, and they were right. 61 Mech Operations Archives have a document which names Battle Group Delta, otherwise known as Victor, as the worst battle group in 82 Mechanized Brigade. The Armoured Squadron had performed well, but in the eyes of the seasoned officers, the rest of the personnel had not. And yet we also know that the planning for Skari did not follow the comprehensive blueprints of various previous operations. Battle Group Victor had been sent into Kuvalai under strength. They were sent into a well-defended position without superior firepower and without the element of surprise. Pretoria had rushed in where angels feared to tread. Furthermore, the SADF belief that Fapla would just run away had been fatally wrong. At Kahama, Molondo, Kaundo and Kuvalai, the Angolans fought for ground. They were not intimidated and they used the T-54 and 55 tanks to great effect. At Kuvalai, the SADF had been defeated in their first engagement and only overcame Fapla when they had managed to concentrate forces. Despite the debriefings, which were not a happy process for the SADF, there was a silver lining. The Angolans were now in a spot of bother. Swapo's campaigns into Avomberland had prompted the SADF invasion. Now Fapla's units needed to recover from the battering they had taken over the past two months. Kasinga had become the southern point of Swapo action, and the political commissars were negative about trying to head into Avomberland for the usual summer invasion. They had to march more than 270 kilometers to the cut line, then they had another couple of hundred k's of a march south into the farming areas of Avomberland. This meant more danger and less time on the ground. The political leadership of Swapo could not spend time politicizing the Vomba people, and they had to speed up their insurgency and then focus on the destruction of infrastructure. Fapla and the Angolan army generally regarded Swapo with some suspicion, and they would be shooting at each other shortly, while the number of events of insurgency into Vomba in 1984 dropped. The South Africans controlled the area south of the Bali River, between the Kuvalai Kasinga Road to the west, and the Kubanga River to the east. The SADF also controlled the Kaneni province east of the Kaneni River all the way past Techimoteti, south of Kasinga. Swapo combatants now needed to carry their landmines, mortar bombs, AK-47s, ammunition, medical equipment on their backs for hundreds of kilometers extra into southwest Africa. Then they had to find water and food, and the insurgents had to use the rainy season to accomplish this between November and March when the vegetation thickened and the number of waterfall shunas rose. While Swapo's capacity waned and they found it more difficult to politicize the local population, Pretoria had also entered a new phase. South Africa was now fighting inside Angola alongside UNITA, a partnership that had firmed and solidified and at the same time drawn the SADF into a more complex arrangement. This was no longer a war concentrating on throwing Swapo out of Wabombaland. The SADF were now a core part of destabilizing southern Angola. But they weren't alone. Cubans and Russians were also playing their part. As you're going to hear over the next few episodes, this was going to have a severe consequence for the SADF. Outside factors began to play a more prevalent part in this African war. The Russians noted with some alarm how the battles of Ascari had impacted their Cuban colleagues. 
The commander, Major General Leopoldo Sintra Frias, believed that the three Angolan brigades in the south should be withdrawn north, where the MiGs could provide better air cover. On the 7th of January 1984, Angolan President José Eduardo dos Santos received a letter from Cuban leader Fidel Castro suggesting the withdrawal. This was a big moment. Imagine a vast swathe of land south of the Benguela railway line which crosses the country from Nibibé on the coast to Menong, controlled by South Africa. It's something that former 3-2 commander Jan Breitenbach had been suggesting, albeit mischievously. He wanted Pretoria to forcefully take command of the region and to defend further north. He was saying, why have all these SADF troops die just to leave and then have to retake the territory in the future? But the Russians on the ground represented the country paying for all this equipment, and the superpower did not agree. General Konstantin Kurochkin refused to allow the three brigades to move north and ordered the Cubans and Fapla to remain where they were. All sorts of diplomatic smoke and mirrors were taking place. The SADF told South African media that the reason why Kuvalai was so difficult to overcome during Ops Askari was because Cuban forces had confronted them. Commandant Ep van Lille of 61 Mac told author Leopold Skoltz later that this was bullshit. It was said for political reasons. There were Cuban advisers, but they fled before we occupied Kuvalai. Pretoria didn't want their voters to know that black Fapla troops had fought so well. It was this kind of lunatic political philosophy that was causing a lot of trouble for the SADF at this time. They were being forced to act as the blunt hammer of apartheid's technocrats, while they were sitting safely back in their whites-only toilets and bistros in separated South Africa while the soldiers did the dirty work. After Obsascari, a few realities had dawned. This was the end of the old noddy car. The obsolete Irland would not be used again in a cross-border attack. The other realisation involved the T-54-55s. The SADF had been found wanting against this tank, and the Kahama assaults as well as Kuvalai showed that something had to be done when it came to anti-tank planning. Within a few weeks of the end of Ascari, South Africa's latest Ulifant Mark I tanks were delivered to 61 Mech as Echo Squadron to be used alongside the mechanised infantry, the rifles and artillery. Van Lille mobilised his men immediately for a show of strength near Ruakana on the border when the tanks arrived, calling the manoeuvres Exercise Eisterface, Iron Fist. And that was that for the while. The next time these tanks would be used in any form of serious cross-border action was only in 1987. Between 1984 and then, the Ulifants were left at 61 Max Umatia base and personnel were flown in for exercises for the next three years. International pressure was also increasing on both the Angolans and the South Africans. By 1984, the American domestic backing for the concept of constructive engagement of Pretoria was waning. Chester Crocker had been Ronald Reagan's point man in Africa, but he was tiring of the National Party's seeming unending need to pulverise southern Angola. The longer it took for Crocker's repeated promises of a breakthrough in Namibian independence negotiations, the less credible the Americans appeared, particularly at home. Between June 1983 and the beginning of 1984, Washington had believed there was a real possibility that South Africa, Mozambique and Angola would come to terms with each other. The Reagan administration had shunned any negotiations or talks with SWAPO directly, or the ANC in South Africa. Therefore, most African countries regarded constructive engagement as nothing more than a moral choice by America to support apartheid South Africa. 
There was also a flourishing trade between South Africa and the US, with the flow of intellectual property to the SA military despite a UN arms embargo. These included modern civilian planes that could be converted to military surveillance aircraft, advanced computer systems, and the delivery of enriched uranium for the South African nuclear plant at Kuburg. At the same time, the glaringly damaging apartheid policy was causing the Americans a great deal of harm. President P.W. Bhutta had launched a new tricameral parliament with Indians, whites and coloureds, but this was seen as a sleight of hand, an attempt at pretending to empower non-whites, and of course, black South Africans were totally excluded from this sham democracy. They were told they belonged in Bantustans. The reason America put up with Pretoria's racism during this period was their joint fight against communism. The Cold War was in full swing, and Washington was monitoring Russian attempts at resource gathering in Africa. However, using the fear of communism as the reason to support a regime that doesn't allow the black majority to vote is not exactly a long-term domestic political strategy that will win you votes in the United States. Then, in an unprecedented move, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, refused to grant additional funds to South Africa in late 1983 as a result of U.S. anti-apartheid initiatives led by a Congressional Black Caucus. Although these anti-apartheid sanctions did not prevent South Africa from securing private loans, the absence of IMF approval made foreign finance more expensive. It was also making it more difficult for Pretoria to access bridging loans from the Bank of International Settlements. In a double whammy, there was a financial crisis in Mexico at that time, which meant international access to debt generally became more difficult, with short-term loans becoming their preferred tool to service emerging market demand. This had a major effect on South Africa's financial liabilities and the war. It was not long before short-term debt rose to $14 billion, while longer-term outstanding loans came to $10.3 billion. Just to give you an idea what all this means, the proportion of South Africa's short to long-term debt of 66% grew even higher than other developing countries in Africa, which were averaging 44%. Sanctions were beginning to bite. And in a triple whammy, the price of gold and the value of the rand dropped, causing the dollar value of these loans to soar. Up to $24.3 billion, or 46% of GDP, and this was going to get much worse within a year rising to 50% by 1985, and anything above 30% is regarded as dangerous debt. So the South African Reserve Bank responded by using gold swaps and partially paying the mines in rands rather than dollars. It's a bit like the Russians making their creditors pay them in rubles rather than dollars these days. And in 1984 there was a surge of violence as black citizens began to fight security forces in the metropolitan areas of South Africa. Television footage was shown on American channels and Democrats began to be arrested during sit-ins at the various South African missions in the United States. This bleak picture, compounded by the wave of political unrest by civic, student, youth and worker organizations, made foreign lending to or investing in South Africa difficult to justify. It's rather ironic then that at this precise moment, the Angolan government was also pressurizing SWAPO to find a solution. In December 1983, South African Foreign Affairs Minister Pick Boota had sent a letter to UN Secretary-General Javier Pérez de Cuea offering to withdraw all troops from Angola for 30 days. Operation Ascari was underway, as you know. The SADF was told to fight through into January, so Boota's letter was also ironic. But Pretoria would withdraw, said Boota, if 
This gesture was reciprocated by the Angolan government, which would ensure that its own forces, Swapo and the Cubans, would not exploit the resulting situation. Luanda's first reaction upon being briefed about this letter was not positive. This, of course, was their own territory, so being called upon to remove their troops from their own southern border was a bit much. Still, they said they would do so only if South Africa agreed to implement UN Resolution 435 within 15 days after a 30-day truce. Just to remind everyone, Resolution 435 called for a ceasefire followed by UN-supervised elections in Southwest Africa, which ultimately would lead to the independence of Namibia. It also called for the establishment of a United Nations Transition Assistance Group, or UNTAG, to oversee both South Africa's withdrawal and the elections. Pretoria, of course, found this unacceptable. But the defeat at Kuvalai changed the Angolans' tactics. On January 21, 1984, they sent a note to the Americans that they were now willing to institute a ceasefire. Chester Crocker met Pickboerter in person a week later and promised that Washington would police any ceasefire. But he also warned Boerter that South Africa's support for the UNITA movement had to end. Crocker's team then briefed Swapo leader Sam Nioma, but failed to ensure that he was elevated to the status of an official party in the upcoming signing. That was a big mistake. Some say this agreement was doomed anyway. However, by leaving Swapo off the list meant they didn't feel equal. They didn't have to abide by the measures. And as you're going to hear, that's precisely what happened. Luanda wanted to end the infiltration of Swapo to the south. The SADF wanted Swapo's bases to be removed. If Angola could reign in Swapo, the SADF would have achieved its objectives of keeping the movement away from southwest African control and therefore the ANC away from its northwestern border. The big idea here was that there would be a Joint Monitoring Commission or JMC set up to monitor both sides as they disengaged from both sides of the cut line. A conference then took place in the Zambian capital Lusaka on the 16th of February 1984 where the Angolans and the South Africans faced off directly. The Pretoria delegation was led by Chief of the Defence Force, Yanni Gelnes, who explained that Pretoria wanted to make sure that both Swapo and the Cubans would be gone from Southern Africa. In turn, the SADF would head back to their bases in Southwest Africa, where they'd be monitored. Both the SADF and FAPLA would conduct joint monitoring, and the JMC would be based in Kuvalai, a rather symbolic location by now. Then in terms of that document, if both sides withdrew, the JMC would then jointly move to Mupa. When the JMC was sure there was no SADF Cuban or Swapo lurking to the north and south of this town, the JMC would move progressively southwards to Ivali, Onjiva and eventually Oshikango on the cutline. The SADF and FAPLA were going to conduct joint patrols and there would be a mechanism to report transgressions. Everything was going to start on the 1st of March, and after 30 days, the SADF would be out of Angola. The SADF was already south of the cutline, so a few units had to be sent back just so that they could work with FAPLA. An advanced party of American technical personnel arrived in Vintuk on the 22nd of February to set up the U.S. liaison office as a base for four or five observers for the duration of the disengagement process. Angola, though, had indicated that U.S. officials would not be welcome inside Angola itself, so they remained in Southwest Africa, apparently. So it all began on the 25th of February when the SA component of the JMC, with Lieutenant General Geldnais in charge, flew to Kuvalai at 0830 in four Pumas and arrived at 10 in the morning. 
Fapler arrived a few hours later in three alouettes, flying red cloth streamers tied to the undercarriage. The delegation was significant and included Officer Commanding 5 Military Region Lieutenant Colonel Sequera, Chairman of the Fapler Component of the JMC Major Javier, and Major Pedro Sebastao, Political Commissar and JMC Member. But it also included Major Vieira Diaz, who was Chief of Air Defence in 5 Military Region, and the Chief of Staff of the Angolan Component, Lieutenant Dos Santos, JMC Member, and Stone Carlos, a civilian interpreter. The short introductory meeting was called Formal but Friendly, with no apparent hostility from either side. Heldenhuis delivered a message expressing concern over reports that at least 400 SWAPO members were reportedly moving through southern Angola towards southwest Africa. Lieutenant Colonel Sequera assured the South Africans that the Angolan government strongly disapproved of these violations and would do everything in their power to prevent the movements. This meeting formally ended at 1400 hours, and was followed by a cold buffet laid on by the SA team, after which Lieutenant General Heldness and his party returned to Oshikati. Before they left, there was the obligatory flag ceremony that was carefully choreographed. The South Africans planted their flag on the flagpole, and Fapla did the same, goose-stepping in the Russian fashion to the second flagpole, then raising their flags. Half the detachment had their AK-47s slung over their shoulders, pointing down. The other half had the AKs slung with muzzles pointing up protocol for Soviet-style flag ceremonies. Then, both sets of soldiers together swept Kuvalai for mines and began sorting out communication links between the JMC and Oshikati and Avambaland. Two South African SAMs doctors joined the JMC team in Kuvalai, along with Tiffies from 5 Maintenance Unit and 25 Field Squadron. Two SA Air Force Pumas were also stationed at the temporary base. The joint patrols were set in motion but even before they began to move, it became obvious that Swapo had hidden away in the south. Sector 10 Intelligence picked up a group of 50 Swapo moving between Shaula, Gruma and Kalema, and also a large Swapo presence in the area around Kasinga. Colonel Dipanar brought this up with Lieutenant Colonel Sequera, who agreed to radio Swapo, but said they had issues with their equipment and it would take about a week to sort it out. The SA team accepted this explanation, but were wondering about the communications problem as their new SWAPO units had field radios. Colonel Dipanar then warned the Angolans that the JMC would have to remain at Kuvalai until SWAPO had moved out of the Kalema area, or the JMC would not be moving from Mupa on the 7th of March. These patrols were curious, to say the least. Here were the two armies together only a few weeks before they'd been pulverizing each other, now they moved in the same patrol. Meanwhile, the SADF produced evidence that Swapo continued to operate just north of the cutline. A 3-2 battalion patrol clashed with a two-man Swapo patrol near Kaluka, killing both. The JMC was immediately notified and sent a team around, including photographers. Then these clashes continued in a 72-hour period between the 11th and 13th of March, when there were four separate incidents between the northerly monitoring force and Swapo in the area approximately 20 kilometers northeast of Bambi. An SADF and FAPLA JMC joint patrol was mortared on the 11th of March, 35 kilometers southeast of Techimoteti. Four of the SWAPO combatants were killed. Then, on the 12th of March, the joint patrol was ambushed 50 kilometers southeast of Techimoteti, and a SWAPO fighter was killed, while a 3-2 battalion soldier was also wounded. The patrol carried on moving, but it was mortared again on the 13th of March, and two FAPLA soldiers were killed, two others were wounded. Later that day, a Swapo reconnaissance group stumbled into the patrol and one of the Swapo was killed and another wounded. 
This was a strange situation for both the SADF and FAPLA, taking cover together being fired on by a swapper. Three further violations followed during the 14th to the 16th of March, bringing the total to 12 incidents by the 16th. But by now, the SADF had also broken the agreement. Two Impalas from Ndangwa had flown north of the Monitor Line near Kasinga on the 9th of March. A secret document at that time indicated that the South Africans believed that Farpler's commander was honestly showing a great deal of frustration with Swapo, and they really were trying to deal with the insurgency. At this stage, the cooperation between the two sides was still being described as very good. Sitting around a braai, however, several of the Farpler members had privately expressed doubt whether Farpler could actually control Swapo, although the two sides continued to try to find common ground. Eventually, Things quietened down for the next move by the JMC south to Mupa, where they arrived on the 22nd of March. The heavy summer rain slowed this new deployment, and in the first five days, the SADF rotated troops from 3-2 Battalion, which arrived on the 24th of March. Fatla was also resupplying their own forces and reoccupying the town of Mupa. They all set up a civilian administration under the watchful eyes of the South Africans. By the 27th of March, Fatla had deployed one battalion at Techumateti, and one company each at Kasinga and Kubalai, while they also stood guard over a bridge at Mupa. Reports began to circulate that Swapo's Alpha Battalion had been spotted south in the Kauno area, while they had also been seen at their logistics bunkers between Mupa and Nanunyo. There was another Swapo company in the Dover Ivali Mulemba area. As you can hear, this JMC ceasefire was not working, largely due to Swapo which regarded itself as outside of both FAPLA and the SADF's control. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps make the series more visible. You can also head off to the website abwarpodcast.com and send me an email through there or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.